Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Psalms chapter number 52. Psalms chapter number 52. What a blessing it is to be with you in the house of the Lord. Isn't it good to be here tonight? Tell you a lot of places we could have been. I just praise the Lord that He allowed us to be here tonight together in the house of God. And I know God's going to do a work in our hearts. If we've come with our hearts open to the truth of the Word of God, I believe He's going to do a work. Psalms chapter number 52 tonight, and uh, I'd like us to begin reading. We're going to read the entirety of the psalm, and uh, we're going to read, uh, we're going to use most of it, I guess I should rather say. Uh, I, I want us to walk through each and every part of it, although I do want to give extra focus to verses 8 and 9 this evening. Psalms chapter number 52, verse number 1, the Word of God says, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness, say law. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place, and root thee out of the land of the living, say law. The righteous also shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Notice verses 8 and 9 especially. David says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time, this opportunity to be together tonight. Lord, there's Christians all over the world that have had to go under peril of persecution, arrest, imprisonment, even death, to get the privilege to do what we have so freely done tonight. Let it never be lost on us. Uh, What a glorious blessing it is to be able to gather with people that know the name of Christ, that know you as their Savior, that know what Calvary's like and have been there and that we can rejoice in and find comfort together in these things. I pray tonight that the Holy Ghost would have liberty. I pray that He'd administrate this service. I pray that He'd govern my words. Lord, that in all things Christ would receive glory for we've gathered here in His name and for His glory and we ask it in that precious name. Amen. Psalms chapter number 52. I want you to notice the little description that's given about this psalm uh, before even the very first verse. It says, To the chief musician, Mashal, which is a musical term, a psalm of David. Notice when this transpires in David's life. It says, When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, and said unto him, David is come to the house of Ahimelech. Now that gives us enough information to place this within the record of Scripture and within the uh, life of King David. Uh, But it really doesn't even in that little short phrase describe what I think is the salient point about this moment in David's life. David, of course, was fleeing from Saul. uh, And he comes to Ahimelech, who is the priest, and he seeks to take refuge there. He has no sword. uh, He has no provisions. Him and his men, they're getting ready to starve, and they, they have nowhere to take shelter. And so they come to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech gives them shelter. Well, after this transpires, this man by the name of Doeg, he's a wicked man. The Bible calls him a son of Belial, which is a Bible term 
for someone that is uh, working under sort of the administration, guidance, governance, and, and influence of Satan. Someone that is satanic in their behavior and wicked and base in their appetites and desires and, and disposition. Uh, Doeg hears that David has come to Ahimelech and hears that Ahimelech has helped David. And so he goes to King Saul and informs King Saul uh, of the treachery, at least in Saul's mind, of what has transpired. Now, we sort of learn that much from that little uh, description that's given, but what's not told to us, and we can find it elsewhere in the record of Scripture, is that Saul uh, then sends forces and violently and cruelly murders Ahimelech and the rest of the priests uh, that were serving and administering under Ahimelech's authority. Now stop and consider how much guilt must have laid upon the heart of King David when he heard this news. Think of how it must have broken his heart to think that this man whose greatest crime was loving him, was caring about him, was taking pity upon him, was giving shelter to him, had been murdered violently and cruelly by the king of Israel, and that the blood of Ahimelech, at least no doubt in David's guilt-ridden mind, the blood of Ahimelech and those priests no doubt rested upon his hands. It's in this context that David pins these words and uh, some of these things he writes, I believe, to the Lord and some of them he writes to others that will hear this psalm. But then some of these things are written directly to Doeg. And I would say this tonight, and I'm going to get to verse number 8, and that's where I'm going to preach. David says he's like a green olive tree in the house of God. But let me go ahead and give you my title for the message tonight, because I think it will sort of be fitting uh, into the introduction. Uh, and that's how to how to grow like a green olive tree in a garden of godlessness. David is surrounded by godless men. He has been directly assaulted and directly attacked by this man Doeg, whom, by the way, David had never done anything against. And this, this act by Doeg had resulted in the murder of one of David's closest friends and the guilt that must have racked his soul. And it is in that context that David is able to make his way by the grace of God down to verse number 8 and rejoice in the Lord and praise God and find peace in the midst of that wicked company. You know, I'd go ahead and admit to you, we live in a wicked day. I think we all understand that. I think we all understand that uh, we're seeing things today that are just absolutely almost unthinkable. And, and I, you know, it wouldn't edify, so I won't give you examples, but every time you open up the news, you see some new abomination, some new perversion, some new uh, sort of uh, slight against the authority and majesty and autonomy of God. And everywhere we turn, it seems like there's wicked men. And if we're not careful as God's people, we will let that weigh us down to a point that we are ineffective in the work of God and in the cause of Christ. I think very often that we we sort of brush past the things that Christ said in His parting words to His disciples just before Calvary when He told them that the world would hate Him and told them that uh, the darkness would reject the light and told them that uh, the world would despise the light of Christ in their life. I think we all believe it. I think we all say it. But I think very rarely do we dwell in the reality of it. And I think we spend a lot more time wringing our hands over the wickedness of the world instead of casting ourselves upon the promises of God and resting in what He has said and what He has declared to be true. 
Notice a few things that David says, just by way of introduction, the description of Doeg. He says, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? So the picture there is that Doeg not only betrayed Ahimelech, but he's pleased with himself over He's rejoicing in the fact that he's done that. I think one of the most sickening things about the wickedness of society today is the pridefulness of the wicked. Uh, people have no capacity for shamefacedness anymore. There was a time when men, uh, they would do evil things, but there was sort of a natural and societal shame that would permeate their life and their actions because they had lived that way. Uh, now it just seems like people have lost the ability to blush. They've lost the propensity for shamefacedness and they, they do wickedly and then they laugh about it and they, they laugh at those they've hurt, they laugh at those they've abused, they laugh at God claiming He'll never recompense their wickedness. It's the boasting, I think, that oftentimes afflicts our spirit. That's how Doeg was. This was a fellow that was happy that he had caused the violence that he had caused. And David's answer is a reminder to this evil man that the goodness of God endureth continually. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not planning on preaching this, so I'm not going to dwell on it, but suffice it to say that when we see the wickedness of the world in our own spirit, we need to answer it with the goodness of God. Recognizing that no matter how evil men are in this world, God remains good. And I love the use of that word endureth. To endure means to survive. It means to to outlast something. Uh, the same way that the anvil outlasts the metal, you know, it, it just it, it outlasts it. No matter how wicked men are, it's not going to undo God's goodness. It says in verse 2, Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness, say law. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful Tongue. Now remember, it's talking to Doeg. I don't know if Doeg ever read this psalm or not. I, I have no idea, but I know in David's heart and mind, he's addressing it to that man. And if that's not a fit description of how men are living today, I don't know what is. But then he says in verse 5, God shall likewise, and I love that word likewise, because it denotes recompense. It denotes a fair, just recompense for the unrighteousness that these men had committed. Now listen, I understand there, there's a lot of things in this Bible to preach on and I, this may not be the funnest thing in the world to, to be preaching on, but it's good for God's people every now and then to be reminded that the wicked don't get away with it. They don't. I don't think we ought to walk around focusing more on the wickedness of men than the goodness of God. In fact, I just said to the contrary, but it does uh, provide a salve for our soul to recognize that wickedness does not go unpunished. And the evil that's so prevalent in the world today, uh, every single idle word of man will be brought into account. And every single action will be brought before the judgment of God. He says, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. Selah. Can I pause and say this? I told you we're just walking through this. We're going to get to a message here in a second. But I, I like the fact that he describes the, the joy and the pleasure and the power of the wicked man as ceasing at the moment of death. Can I remind you of this tonight, that the wicked man, whatever power he has in this life, it's the only power he'll ever have. Whatever joy he has in this life, Brother Fred, it's the only joy he'll ever have. He's getting ready to leave this world and go into everlasting condemnation, everlasting punishment, everlasting judgment. And whatever power or influence or prosperity that they may have accrued through ill means is but temporal. 
Now the opposite is true for us as believers. When we lay up treasures in heaven, we're laying up eternal things, things that raw, rust and moth and thief cannot touch and cannot corrupt. And David takes encouragement recognizing that whatever ability Doeg had to wreak havoc upon those righteous men whom he had caused to be slain, it was but temporary and he was going to leave this world and have to stand before an angry God. He says in verse 6, the righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. That implies the fact that the righteous are going to live longer than the wicked. Now, it doesn't seem to always be that way as far as the temporal sojourn of this life is concerned. But I would remind you that the righteous man, the man that's been made righteous by believing in, in Jesus Christ and by receiving His forgiveness and by putting his sins under the blood of Christ, that man, this life, is not the end of matters. He will live to see the wicked recompense. He said, Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But, verse number 8. I want you to notice a few thoughts with me tonight about how and, and in what ways David was able to describe himself in this darkest of times, in this most wicked of times, in this most devastating of events, He was able to describe himself like a green olive tree in the house of God. He was able to describe himself as someone that has more road ahead of him than behind him, more life within him than without him, someone that was growing and surviving and thriving and being used of God and finding peace and confidence in Him. I want us to notice a few things about what he said. Verse 8, But I am like a green olive tree. Let me say a word first about his condition. It's interesting, he goes on to describe himself as being a green olive tree in the house of God. Now, of course, when David penned this, there was no temple. Uh, There was only the tabernacle. And uh, the tabernacle, just like the temple, was made of the holy of holies and then the, the holy place and then the outer court and, and uh, the court of the Gentiles. And it had a structure to it. But the temple, of course, the majority of it, it had floor. It had a solid surface beneath it. But the tabernacle was a moving, transient structure. And it would be set up anywhere in the wilderness. And so it would not be impossible to imagine that the tabernacle could have been set up around an olive tree growing in the midst of it. Although it was not custom, it was not common for olive trees. They didn't have a hedge grove of, uh, of olive trees growing in the midst of it. So why did he use this terminology? Well, I think he wanted to evoke some things, not about particular trees growing in particular places, but about trees in general, about this green olive tree and his life. Let me say, number one, he describes himself as viable. It is a green olive tree. Now, green means it is it is young, it is tender, it is growing. A tree that is green is green because there is sap flowing through it. There is life living within that tree. Even a young tree, if it dies, will dry out. But a green tree, be it big, be it small, always denotes a living entity. David notes the fact that there is life dwelling within him. I'll tell you something, if you, want to, if you want to keep your peace of mind, if you want to keep your joy in this wicked day that we live in, you've got to rely upon the life of Christ that dwells within you. You cannot look to the externalities of life. Because I'll just be honest with you, sometimes, and this is how the, war, the, the devil is, the devil is a master of optics. Uh, the devil always deals in, in, in what we see, in, in the eye, the lust of the eyes. 
You'll find this to be common. Eve, for instance, she saw the fruit that it was uh, much to be desired to be eaten. Uh, The devil always tries to put things before our eyes. And uh, Job himself made the commitment that he'd set no wicked thing before his eyes because he knew that's how the devil will often try to approach us. And so it's very common to look outwardly at this world. And if we're not careful, there's times it looks like the devil is winning. There's times it looks like what we see outside our Bible doesn't match what we know to be inside our Bible. And at those moments, at those times, we have to rest and rely upon a couple things. One, upon the immutable character and nature of God. That God never has lied. God never will lie. He's not going to start lying right now. If He said it, then it's true. Him saying it is what makes it true. He is the standard. He is the pillar of truth. He is the fountain of truth. But also upon this life that dwells and lives within us. There are times that, uh, except for the witness of the Spirit of God in my life, it would almost seem as though God had forgotten me, had abandoned me, had walked away from me. There have probably been times in your life when you have had tragedies. Now you might say, well, preacher, that's a little melodramatic. Not to David it wouldn't have been. He had just seen one of his closest friends cut down by wicked King Saul. And he did it because he was trying to get to David. Uh, There are times in your life where things will grow so heavy that you'll feel as though uh, surely God has forgotten about you. Surely God has walked away from you. Surely uh, this, this faith that you've had for all these years has been a delusion. And in those moments, we must be reminded that the greatest witness, the greatest evidence, the greatest proof of the life of God in our lives is the life of God in our lives. A green tree is viable, and if we want to uh, survive and thrive in this wicked day, then we have to make sure that that life of Christ is being tended to, is being is being fostered, is being uh, emphasized in our life. We have to be living in fellowship with Him. We have to be obedient to Him. We have to be in prayer to Him and sensitive to His leading and guidance. So it is a viable thing. Not only that, but a green tree is bendable. It is bendable. It's not rigid. Uh, it's amazing, and I, I've never lived near the coast, but uh, any time a hurricane comes through, uh, you'll see, and some of y'all have lived in the coast and seen this, those palm trees uh, that will bend almost over sideways, but they won't break and they won't snap. And you'll, you'll drive through and all manner of trees, if you go by a ravaged, hurricane, devastated community, oftentimes the only trees left standing are palm trees. Well, why is that? Well, the rest of the trees got blown over because they wouldn't bend. They broke. But the palm trees survive because they'll bend without breaking. It's not their rigidity, it's their flexibility that makes them resilient to the winds that blow against them. And in your life and mine, we have to recognize that very often uh, what we perceive to be the course and the plan of our lives is something that often God will change, will bend, will mold, will develop, will shape. And if we don't learn sometimes to bend when the wind blows, we'll break. If we don't learn sometimes to give up on some of the things that we have engendered and instead just ask for the will of God, whatever it might be, then we'll find that that rigidity will lead to our breaking. If David hadn't been willing to trust God, and that's really what I'm talking about, trusting God when things don't work out the way you think they will, trusting God. If David hadn't learned to trust God in this moment, it would have broken. But he learned how to bend instead of breaking. And then uh, a green olive tree is profitable. It's interesting. You know, he could have said this about any kind of tree. He could have said a, a, a green uh, a green juniper tree. He could have said a green mulberry tree. He could, but he says a green olive tree. The olive tree was the backbone of the Middle Eastern economy. 
In fact, the olive tree was to the Middle East what like whale hunting was to, uh, you know, America and, and, and England in the 1700s. I mean, that's where they got their light. It's where they got their cooking fuel. It's where they uh, got their spices. It's where, I mean, it's almost unimaginable how integral the olive tree was to the way of life that David was living. You know what he's saying? He's denoting the fact that God has the ability to make us profitable even in a wicked day. Even in a wicked day. The world may be getting worse, but that don't mean we have to get worse. The world may be becoming more godless, but that don't mean that we have to become more godless. Uh, The whole reason, you know, the church is an entity outside of time. It's an eternal ideal injected into this temporal world was something that was uh, that was concealed to the prophets and seers of old. And God literally plucked it out of His heart and inserted it into time. And as such, we as members of this body, as members of the body of Christ, we're not to live bound to this world, to this time, to, to this society, to this culture. So the culture, the society may be going one direction, but that's no excuse for us to go that direction. We can continue to be faithful and profitable even in this wicked day. So he describes his condition, but notice his location. It's an unusual location, as we already noted. It's not where an olive tree normally would have been, but it's where David said he wanted to be, and that's in the house of God, in the place of worship. I've learned this in my life, that it, when people get out of church, it don't take long before they get sour. It don't take long before their spirit degrades. It doesn't take long before they get bitter. I've seen some people get bitter in the house of God, but I've seen far more get bitter because they left the house of God. You want to be able to survive and thrive and keep a good spirit and maintain your joy and rejoice and laugh at the devil when he's trying to destroy you? Stay in church. Stay in the house of God. I've never met anyone that was helped by quitting the house of God. Never once. I can't point you to a single person. I've seen hundreds leave the house of God, but but I couldn't point you to one of them that was better off for getting out of church. David says, I want to be in the house of God. I want to be planted there like a tree. I want to stay there. I want to be resilient and committed in my placement. It was a place of worship. But here's something I think we need to note as well. I think, and I don't know if David meant this, but I definitely believe the Holy Ghost meant this. Uh, I think he wanted to draw our attention to the fact that the house of God is a place of wisdom. There's another place that the house of God features prominently in this discussion about wicked men prospering. And that's in the 73rd Psalm. Now, the 73rd Psalm was not written by David. It was written by Asaph, who was the leader of, of the temple choir. And Asaph was a man that had uh, he led hundreds in, in public worship and in song, but he had lost his own song. And, uh, he had grown discontented and uh, he had sort of been having a what we might call a crisis of faith and struggling to understand how the wicked could prosper and God could still be providential. And in the 73rd Psalm, he describes all this, how that uh, he, you know, he knows that God is good to Israel and to them that fear him, but he was about to slip and he was about to fall and he was he was just barely treading water and, and he was about to sink. And he describes how he saw the wicked man prospering and seeming as though there was never any he recompense for his for his wrongdoing and how he was grappling with it. He even describes this inner monologue that he had where he began to wonder whether it was even worth it to serve God. He said, I've cleansed my hands in vain. There's no point in it. There's no point in going to church and serving God. But listen to when things changed. In Psalm 73, verse 17, he's going along this big, long description. He's right down, I mean, wallowing. I mean, he's right down in the midst of his misery. And then he says this, until... Now that word until denotes there's a change. 
uh, in the direction the wind's blowing. It was going this way, but he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. He said, then I understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. And I'd encourage you to read the 73rd Psalm when you get a moment. I won't for time's sake. But he goes on to describe how that he, he began to realize as he spent time in the house of God that uh, the wicked man, though he may seem to be uh, securely situated, was but a moment, but a moment away from destruction. Now, what I find interesting is this. I don't think Asaph says anything after that word until that he didn't know before that word in, until. In other words, I don't think any of the things that he goes on to describe when he says, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. He goes on describing how God's just and God's going to cast down the wicked man and God's going to repay all of their evil doing and God's going to preserve the righteous man. I don't think a man leading music for the temple choir, I don't think a man that is a public servant of God, I don't think a man that had written other psalms before and was in tune with the leading of the Holy Spirit in the writing of those psalms, a vessel whom God could use, I don't think that man was unaware of those things. But being in the house of God, God did a work in his heart to affirm those things. I say this all the time, and you've heard me say it before, that I'll get up to preach and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. Uh, very often, I don't need to know something I don't already know. I need to be reminded of something I already do know. Uh, very often, what I need is for God to affirm something that I know is true, but my faith is faltering. My faith is failing. Let me tell you why you need the house of God, because the devil's whispering in your ear every chance he gets, and you need uh, to give God a chance to speak to. You need to give the Lord a chance to reconfirm those things in your heart and mind. If you spend all your time listening to what the devil tells you, he'll convince you that what he's telling you is true. You need God to speak to your heart and remind you of these things. So I see his location. Not only that, notice his conviction. He says, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I love that statement, the mercy of God. Mercy, of course, if we were to define it theologically, is God not giving us something that we do deserve. David, in other words, confessing that he, he probably is owed whatever pain he's dealing with, but that God being a merciful God, it's within God's character and disposition to not deal with him after what he deserves, but to instead deal with him in grace and mercy. But I love just what he says at the beginning. He doesn't say, I will trust in thy mercy. He says, I trust in thy mercy. I trust in the mercy of God. In other words, this was a statement of present trust. Now, who was he saying this to? Again, I would remind you, I think there's sort of a few people that he has in mind. I think he's talking to the Lord. I think this psalm, like every psalm, is in some ways an expressive prayer of his heart. I think undoubtedly he is addressing this to Doeg. I don't know if Doeg ever read this psalm, but he's writing it with him as his, as his audience. Probably David understood it being a psalm, it would be used in public worship, and others would read this. But I think just as David very often would do, I think he was speaking to himself here as well. This is a statement of commitment. He's saying, he's reminding himself that he's somebody that trusts in the mercy of God. You know, sometimes our principles and our attitude get out of kilter. Sometimes what we know to be true and what we, what God has confirmed in our hearts a million times, sometimes our attitude, our spirit, our disposition will begin to act in a way contrary to what we know. 
And sometimes we have to do like David did and remind ourselves of some truths. This is a statement. Of, I think he is. I think he's just saying it out loud. Sometimes it's good just to say it out loud. Sometimes it's good just to declare it, just for your own edification, for your own hearing. I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. He's my Father, and I trust Him. Regardless of what is transpiring. David would do this over and over again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Who was he talking to when he said, O my soul? He was talking to himself. This is a declaration of conviction. It is a declaration of present trust. But not only that, it's a statement of perpetual trust. He says, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Now, can I make an application here? I don't know if David had this in mind, but I certainly see this in the text. He is saying that his trust in God's mercy extends beyond the present, beyond the immediate, beyond the temporary, and into eternity. That's what forever and ever means, right? It's eternal. Is that correct? You with me? That's eternal. You got to say amen real loud for those that stayed home tonight. Isn't that right? Forever and ever. That's eternity, right? Now stop and think about this with me. Being in the mercy of God for eternity. Don't you think you can trust in the mercy of God for the present? Now everybody in this room no doubt would say, yeah, preacher, I'm trusting in the mercy of God for eternity. I'm trusting that God has forgiven me, that He's kept His word, kept His promise. I'm trusting that blood is sufficient. I'm trusting that His His work on the cross of Calvary is a full and finished and final work. We're trusting Him with that. So why can we not trust Him with other things? That's literally the most important thing a human being could ever trust anyone with. Their eternal soul. It reaches beyond whatever immediate consequences we may deal with and reaches into a realm and into an existence that we really, if we're being honest, have no real concept experientially of. We're willing to trust God with eternity. Why won't we trust Him with today? It's a statement of perpetual trust. And then notice verse 9. He says this, I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. Here we see his devotion. He's mindful to praise the Lord. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves to praise God. Sometimes we'll be so overcome with sorrow that we'll forget that God's praiseworthy. Can I tell you something? If the worst thing imaginable happened to you or to me tomorrow, God would still be worthy of our praise. It would still be worthy of our praise. David says, you know, sometimes I have to remind myself that God's good because my circumstances aren't good. Sometimes I have to stop and remind myself to praise the Lord. Have you ever had a situation take you by such surprise you had to remind yourself to breathe? Sometimes spiritually that's what happens. Uh, the breath of our lips ought to be praise unto the Lord. And sometimes we just get so, so absolute uh, hammered by the problems of life that it's like we stop breathing praise unto His name. What is most natural, what is most appropriate, what we know is acceptable, what we know is, is right... We cease to do. Let me tell you, it's always a good time to praise God. doesn't matter how bad things are going. I've found that the most resilient people in life are people committed to a life of praise. People that are committed to say to speak good of the Lord, no matter what is happening in their lives. When you find somebody like that, you find someone that just seems to buoy their way over life's largest waves. If we can commit ourselves to praise, even in the midst of our trials, we'll find that we've done much to disarm Satan's ability to affect us and to enslave us. He's mindful to praise the Lord. And I love this phrase. 
He says, because thou hast done it. What does he mean when he says it? By basic rules of grammar, you would usually, if you have a pronoun, you would go backwards in the in the language and try to find the closest proper noun to it. But really, I mean, if we go back, this begins, I trust in the mercy of God uh, forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. What is it? The closest thing we could ascribe it to would be the mercy of God. But the mercy of God is not something God does, something God bestows. I think there's something beautiful that takes place here. I think the it is referencing all of it. I think it's referencing every good thing that God has done. I jotted it down this way. He's mindful to praise the Lord, but he's also mindful of the precedent of the Lord, the pattern of the Lord, the history of the Lord. Say, preacher, what is it? It's all of it. It's every good thing that God has ever done in your life and in mine. Can I ask you this? Has God proven Himself faithful to us? Has He proven Himself good? Has He proven that He wants our good? That He wants to bless us? That He wants our life to be full and rich and and blessed? I mean, has God proven that He loves us? That He cares for us? That He cares more for us than we even care for ourselves? Hasn't He done all of it? If he has, then isn't he worthy of our praise? He's mindful that God has never had a pattern of cruelty to his children. Never once can you point to an unfair or unjust action upon the part of the Lord. I may not understand what God's doing, and you may not understand what God's doing. But it does not change the nature and character of God. Imagine what a weak God he would be if if our if it, if his divinity was based upon our understanding of him. How many times have you heard preachers say this? If you could always understand God, He wouldn't be God. Am I right? If He if He always comported and conducted Himself in human manners, in ways that our finite mind could process and understand, He wouldn't be much of a God. If His divinity was based upon our understanding Him, He wouldn't be God in the first place. So what do we do, preacher? Well, I heard one fellow say it this way, when you cannot trace his hand, you trust his heart. You trust his history. I see his devotion. Notice his situation. What I mean by situation is where he's placed himself or how he has placed himself. He says, I will wait on thy name. In other words... You see this all the time. You know, it's football season, or it was football season. For the first time in a long time for Tennessee, it's still football season. Amen? we got a bowl game coming up. But uh, when you watch those uh, linemen, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, doesn't matter who it is, uh, and they get ready, that ball get, gets ready to be snapped, you'll see them all jump up off. They've been resting on, on their back legs. They'll jump up and fall into that stance. They are situating themselves to jump. They're positioning themselves to move. David says, I'm not positioning myself to move without God. I have reclined and I am resting and I will wait on thy name. He's committed himself to wait patiently. I would remind you something you've often heard me say. That patience is not a matter of waiting. Oftentimes we wait and don't wait patiently. If you want to know the difference between waiting and waiting patiently. Uh, just tell your kids you're going to stop and get them an ice cream cone. They can't make the car go any faster. They have to wait. But they're not waiting patiently. You see, patience relates to the disposition with wait. The attitude we wait with. 
David, when he says, I will wait on thy name, he's saying, I'll wait patiently. I'll give God his time. I'll let God take whatever time he needs, knowing his timing is perfect. I understand it's hard to wait on God at times. I find it hard to wait on God at times. If I'm being honest, I struggle with patience, just like many of you probably do. But God has never once been too late in anything He's done. And He won't be too late in whatever the matter is you're trusting Him with. He's committed. His situation is to wait patiently, but also to wait providentially. He says, I will wait on thy name. What does He mean by thy name? Well, when we describe something being done in someone's name, we're, we're dealing with, with who, to whom credit is to be given. To whom glory is to be given. You do something in someone's name and you're saying, I am giving them credit for whatever it is that is transpiring, or I'm doing it on behalf of their wishes or their desires. It has to do with identifying and labeling things. And here's what I think David's saying. I think he's saying, I'm going to wait, God, until you do it in such a way that it gives glory to you. I could do it in my name. I could do it in someone else's name. But I want to wait and I want it to be done in your name. In other words, he's saying, God, I want to wait on you to do this. Part of waiting patiently in the midst of an ungodly world is waiting on God to do it in His way. In His time. There are a great many things we can somewhat accomplish in our own ability. But to do so is to really not accomplish anything at all. You see, it's not a matter of getting the job done. God can get the job done with or without us. It's a matter of things being accomplished in such a way that we and those around us have to step back and give glory to God, recognizing that it's been Him that has accomplished whatever it is that we've been waiting on. David says, I'm going to wait on you to do it, Lord. I could do it. And by the way, David could do it. I think there's a strong case to be made that that David had the military power and prowess to try to march on Jerusalem, to try to overthrow Saul. I think he probably could have done it. And certainly, if nothing else, he could have killed Doeg. But he says, I'm not going to do it, God. I'm going to step back and I'm going to let you do it. We see his situation. And finally, and I'll be done tonight, I want you to notice his consolation. Look at the very end of verse number 9. He says, For it is good before thy saints. Again, basic grammatical rules. What is the it? Well, I think the it in this case is the Lord's name. The Lord's name. And he's saying that when God does this, He will do it in such a way. And I wrote, I wrote it this way. In such a way that it will profit the saints. He says, Everything that God has ever done has been good for His people. It's always been primarily for His glory, but it's always been good for His people. I didn't say it's always pleasant. I didn't say it's always the way we would have chosen for it to be done. But when we step back and take registry of what God has done in our lives, I think we all have to admit that God's always done it and done it better than we would have done it had we been pulling the strings. God's mercy in God's name It's good before thy saints. It's profitable. It will always profit the saints. There's nothing you could trust God with that He'll do a worse job of it than you would. There's nothing you can trust God with but what He'll do the best job that can be done with it. It will profit the saints. But then I I wrote this down. It will pass inspection. It is good before thy saints. Who is it that decides whether something's good or not? 
You know, it's interesting. You stop and think about... the Me and my wife, we have what I believe is a very good... Um, a very good compromise and working relationship as it relates to cooking. I don't know if you're aware of this, but she's good at cooking and I'm good at eating. And uh, But we have this agreement that if there's anything wrong with anything she cooks, I'm going to tell her. And uh, we, I know some of y'all groaned when I said that, but she wants me to. She's demanded that I do because she knows that's the only way she's going to become a better cook. And she's a really good cook. And a lot of that is because I'm real critical. Amen? But she uh, she's always said, no, I want to know. You know, if the meatloaf is dry, I want you to tell me. Because that way I can fix it, I can change it next time, make it better. Ain't no sense for us to be married and eat dry meatloaf for 30 years just because you're too polite. You tell me if there's something wrong with it. We were sitting there on vacation. Mom and Dad were down there with me and they got mad at me. Uh, because Leah, she had cooked us a beautiful meal and she always does but she had cooked my steak a little bit too done and uh it wasn't terrible i still ate it amen of course if it had been shoe leather i would have ate it but but she asked everybody at the table she said how how is your steak and of course everybody at the table mom oh it's perfect wonderful perfect best steak i've ever had dad said oh man it's out of this world it's the best thing i've ever had and i said well mine's a little overdone and I looked over and mom and dad both were just staring daggers through me. Because I guess of my impoliteness. But you see, here's the reality. My wife, she by and large, she cooks meals at church and this and that. But, but her purpose, she feels in life as it relates to cooking, is to cook for three people in the world. And that's me and the two boys. And she wants us to be content. She wants us to be happy. It's not necessarily about, in her mind, in her heart, it's not about whether she thinks it's good, it's about whether we think it's good, because we're the ones consuming it. So, it's got to pass inspection, quote-unquote, for her to be content. We have to be content for her to be content. You know what David says about the mercy and name of God? It's good before thy saints. Take a poll of God's people that have walked with Him. And ask yourself, does God's goodness and mercy pass inspection? Who is God interested in it benefiting, in it profiting, in it being pleasing to? Now, I think there would probably be a lot of people that would say, well, preacher, there's things I don't understand. But I don't think there's one of us that would say, of the things I understand, I believe God did this wrong. I think if you took a poll of God's people, there may be things we don't understand, but of the things that we believe we've got to handle on, we'd all have to say, that He hath done all things well. Man, trust God. Hey, even in the midst of a godless world, you can bloom and grow and thrive like a green olive tree. If you'll keep your joy, keep your focus on God, trust Him, give Him time. Give Him time. We get so impatient on God. God is eternal. And God is keenly aware of how little time we have in this world. God will do things in perfect timing. But you've got to trust Him with it.